You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. I want to ask you to turn to your Bibles in the one you brought with you, one that's there in the pew on the YouVersion Bible app if you're using your phone. Luke chapter 4. That's on page 718 in that Pew Bible. There are instructions there if you want to use the YouVersion Bible app. Um, If you haven't been with us in a while, we have been in the story. That's what we're doing all year long. And this is the story. The story is a condensed chronological narrative of the Bible. And last week with our fall kickoff, we we got back into the story. We got into Act 2. Well, the first part of the year we covered Act 1, which is what we would consider the, the, New Test, the Old Testament, excuse me. Last week we started Act 2, which is the New Testament. And again, what we covered in our first journey back into the story is the, the resolve of the sort of the cliffhanger ending of Part 1. After prolonged waiting and hoping for the fulfillment of the promise of a coming Messiah, a Savior, Act 2 opens, the New Testament begins, by God breaking the silence of four centuries and delivering someone, as we talked about last week, no one could have imagined coming. Himself. The incarnation. The word became flesh. This is what we dived into last week. The author entered the story in the person of Jesus Christ. And in journeying as far from heaven to earth, by getting as close as our own skin, what we learned last week is our creator demonstrates he is both with us and for us. Today, as we turn to chapter 23, the scene abruptly changes from the manger in Bethlehem to the waters of the Jordan River. And as this dramatic scene change takes place, the question now becomes, who will this baby grow up to be? What kind of Messiah has come for us? And to kind of catch us up to where we're going to begin today, when the scene change happens, we're we're moved to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is cut from the cloth of the biblical prophets of old, particularly Elijah. And he's getting everyone's attention for Jesus' reappearance. Through a baptism of repentance, John gets the people ready for the new and yet long-anticipated thing God is about to do. Seemingly in the midst of this out of nowhere, Jesus shows up and immerses himself in waters that John didn't expect were for him. As Jesus is baptized into life as we know it. Life as we experience it and live it every day. Once again, like in his birth, the Lord identifies himself with us. And at the same time as he takes the baton from his cousin John, Jesus embraces his commissioning for service to save us, to save the world. And this commissioning of Jesus Christ is immediately battle-tested in the desert of temptation. As Jesus faces the challenges and the threats we encounter in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, in our journey to becoming who he has created us to be. His 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness are in many ways a remake of a chapter from way back in the story. You might remember it, the journey of the Israelites in the wilderness. Except in this remake, 
the ending that gets changed. Instead of defeat this time, there is victory. Rather than wandering in the wilderness, Jesus comes through the other side, and the stage is now set for Jesus' ministry to begin. And that's really what we're covering today. What we're covering today is the ministry of Jesus. And, and that's a pretty big, tall order. You know, through the four Gospels, the whole of what Jesus taught and did. How do we cover that? And I think the scripture we're going to zero in on is, for me, when I think about the ministry of Jesus, one of my favorite moments. Really, it's a defining moment in revealing who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And it's found as you have it open in the Gospel of Luke. And I'd further add, before we read it, it's apparently one of Luke's treasured vignettes, too. Because this is the first introduction he really gives us to the ministry of Jesus. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 4, if you got those Bibles open, we're going to start in verse 14. Let's hear. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. With that in the background, we're going to come back to it. I want you to start this morning by indulging me in a brief thought experiment. Okay? I want you to take a moment right now, clear your head of everything else you might be thinking about. If you haven't been paying attention up to now, lock in, okay? I know, I know, I know. You're looking at the score of the game. You got groceries, you got lunch. Lock in. And I want you to think right now, okay, about everything you remember about what Jesus said. Everything you can remember about what Jesus taught. Just let that fill your mind right now. Everything you remember about what Jesus said, everything about what Jesus taught. And hopefully as these things are coming to the surface, flowing around inside your mind, here's the question. As you're thinking about everything Jesus, that you can remember Jesus said, that Jesus taught, if you were to boil it all down to one sentence, to one phrase, to one idea, what would it be? If you were to boil it down to one sentence, one phrase, one idea, what would it be? Anybody? Speak up. Love, love, love God. Okay, good. What? Shalom. shalom, shalom, peace, wholeness. Anybody else? This side of the room. Come on, don't be shy. What's that? Through me, salvation. Love of God, shalom. Through me, salvation. Couple, couple more takers. Anybody? What's that? Love each other as I've loved you. Same thing. Okay, Jinx. You guys got each other's soda. Last call. Anybody else got something they haven't heard? Hope for the hopeless. Really, really good stuff. 
Some of you may have had your thing, and you're like, I don't want to share it. Uh, no one's going to like it. We would have loved it, okay? The thing is, the answer to this question, our answer to this question tells us a lot about who we think Jesus is. I mean, when you boil it down, it kind of sums up how we see, how we understand Jesus. Now, there is actually an answer to this question that I've given you, this mental exercise. Matthew, Mark, and a little less explicitly, but definitely conclusively, Luke, they all give us the answer, the summary of everything Jesus said and taught. They do. They give it to us right at the start of Jesus' ministry. You can find it in Matthew 4. You can find it in Mark 1, chapter 1. And here in Luke, again, not as explicit, but still there. And the essence, the, the breakdown of everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus said comes down to this. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has arrived. Look through the scriptures. Look through the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John but especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And without question, if you want to know what's the summary of everything Jesus taught and spoke about, it comes down to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the essence, the core, the heart of what Jesus was about. It's what he talked about. It's what he taught about. It's what he said he was revealing. Matthew's gospel alone, just to give you an example, 28 chapters, right? 28 chapter gospel. Jesus refers to the kingdom of God no less than 50 times. 50 times. So today, when we look at this huge idea of reviewing the ministry of Jesus, we're going to explore his central focus, which was the kingdom of God. And by the way, just before we go any further, if you're a Matthew gospel reader, he uses kingdom of heaven. Don't stress, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they're interchangeable. Same idea. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, okay? So we're going to cover three things today. We're going to cover defining what the kingdom of God is. What it means. If Jesus is, this is how he encapsulates what he's all about. What is the kingdom of God? Second, we're going to consider how the kingdom of God is different than what we expect. How it's different than what we expect. And third, we're going to learn how to see the kingdom. How to see the kingdom of God. How to recognize and participate in it. So we're going to define it. We're going to consider how it's different from what we expect. And then we're going to learn how to see the kingdom of God. To recognize it and participate in it. You with me? We all in? Yes? Yay, team. Okay, good. All right. It's going to be one of those days. All right. So, first, if Jesus is declaring the kingdom of God has come near, what is he talking about? And there's two things Jesus repeatedly says about the kingdom of God throughout the Gospels. Two statements that, when I give them to you, at first sound contradictory to each other. They seem in, in tension with each other, but actually help us better understand what the kingdom of God is. Even before Jesus started talking about or teaching what the kingdom of God is like, as I told you, Jesus started by declaring the kingdom of God is among you. That's the first statement Jesus would repeatedly make. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is in you. Meaning the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is with us right here and right now. And this first statement makes sense with our perception of what a kingdom is, right? For us, when we think of a kingdom just in general, generically, the idea of a kingdom has to do with a place, a locale, somewhere you can enter and occupy. So Jesus says, the first statement is, the kingdom of God has come near. It's in you, with you, here and now. But here's the thing. In the Gospels, whenever anyone tries to localize the kingdom, right, anyone tries to nail it down, Jesus also continually explained with this second statement, my kingdom is not of this world. What? Huh? 
So the kingdom is here, but it's not here? The kingdom is near you, but not anywhere you can find on a map? Again, two statements that seem contradictory to each other. But to help clear this up, the biblical understanding, and what I mean by that is the Greek and Hebrew words for the kingdom of God have this idea to do more with an action than a place. So the, the biblical idea of the kingdom of God has more to do with an action than a place. In fact, we might actually put it this way. The biblical understanding of the kingdom of God is primarily about an action that involves a place. So to break this down, the kingdom of God is the activity of God reigning over his people. But here's the best paraphrase I can give you, the best nugget of what is the kingdom of God according to the scriptures. The kingdom of God is God meeting us in our present in order to move us into his future for us. The kingdom of God is God meeting us in our present in order to move us into his future for us. So let's kind of unpack that. We read from Luke because Luke tells us that when Jesus starts out announcing the kingdom of God, he reads from Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah to announce the kingdom of God. And, and I want to share with you that this isn't a coincidence. Yes, he's in synagogue as it was his custom. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. But if you've ever read Isaiah, Isaiah is a big scroll. It's a lot. There's a lot. And we're told Jesus intentionally turns to a particular passage. Now, I want to talk to you more about where Jesus turns, but let me remind you who Isaiah was. Isaiah was a prophet who divinely foresaw the end of the story, both parts one and part two. Isaiah foresaw the end of part one. He foresaw the conquering of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. He foresaw the destruction of the temple of the Lord. He foresaw the exile of pretty much all of the Israelites from their homeland. And as Isaiah sees everything falling apart, he sees that it all falls apart thanks to a mess of the people's own making. Everything falls apart because of their repeated tendency towards corruption, their exercise of injustice, their posture of indifference and even defiance towards God. There's nothing new here. This is everything we covered when we looked at the first part of the story. But here's the key. What Isaiah also foresees in the aftermath of the leveled city of Jerusalem, in the midst of this fallen world, Isaiah also foresees the rest of the story. As everyone wonders in that moment if this is the end, as all fear, if, has God abandoned them, Isaiah catches this prolonged glimpse. It's so prolonged it takes many chapters for him to write about. Isaiah catches this prolonged glimpse of a messenger running towards the people with good news. And the good news is this. Good news, by the way, gospel. The good news is this. Despite what has happened, despite what always seems to happen, the Lord is still king. God still reigns. One day, our God, our king, will return. He will come and he will take up the throne and he will make peace. He will make everything right. I give you this background because when Jesus is handed the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he turns to a particular passage, he turns right to the thick of this vision that Isaiah has. And everything I just told you, keep that in mind as you remember what Jesus read because after he reads it, Jesus says that he's explicit in reading Isaiah that that time that Isaiah foresaw is now. Hear this. The announcement of the kingdom of God isn't that God is going to reign over his people at some place way out there in the distance in the future. 
The activity of the kingdom of God is so much more than the promise of going to heaven after our life on this earth. It's so much more than tomorrow. No, Jesus announces the good news. God has come down to earth to change this world, to transform our lives today. Contrary to how it's often told, still in our lives, the kingdom of God is not about us escaping from this world. No, the kingdom of God is about the execution of the Lord's rescue plan. Not to reject this world, but to save it. But the good news, the gospel, the message of the kingdom doesn't stop there. Luke 4, such a famous passage, many of us know it. I don't know if you catch this. But the good news doesn't stop just here. Because follow with me what I've told you about Isaiah, right? At first, it would appear in declaring Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled, what Jesus is doing is he's positioning himself as the messenger of the good news, the one that Isaiah foretold. This is me, Jesus is saying. And everyone in the crowd, you heard, is excited to hear this. This is awesome. This is what most Jews were expecting, a messenger to come and pave the way for the kingdom of God. But pay close attention here. The whole of Isaiah's vision, I shared it with you, was not just of a messenger coming, but of God the king himself, right? To take up the throne and set everything right. That was the whole of Isaiah's vision. Keep that in mind because look at what Jesus says after he reads from Isaiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus didn't say, well, we're kind of halfway there. I'm the messenger. It's coming. Jesus says, today, this scripture, Isaiah's vision, has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the message of the kingdom of God is not only God reigns, intercedes for his people, but the message of the kingdom of God is that Jesus himself is more than the messenger. Jesus is the return of the king himself. We last week looked at the incarnation and it's so important we go back there for a second because the gift of the incarnation is inseparably linked to the message of the kingdom. The gift of the incarnation is inseparably linked to the message of the kingdom. Our creator, our father, our Lord, who is not of this world, has brought the goodness, the truth, and the power of eternal divine life into this broken, finite, and lost creation. The world we know, and he's done it in Jesus Christ. God's statement through Isaiah of I'm in charge, I'm running the show, the Lord's declaration, I'm taking it back, I'm fixing what is mine, gets real. It gets up close and personal because God is with us. His kingdom comes to us through Jesus Christ. And the reality of this kingdom, the reality that God reigns as we go through the rest of the Gospels, is witnessed not through just what Jesus says, but it's witnessed through what Jesus does. Time and time again, hear how people talk about Jesus. They say two things. He speaks and he acts with authority and power. The word become flesh brings deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. We see it over and over again. The word become flesh brings deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. This is what we see in individual and larger episodes. 
against the three major strongholds that stand against the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but what are the three major strongholds that stand against the kingdom of God? First, our captivity to idolatry. Our captivity to idolatry, our tendency to be possessed by what we worship that's other than the Lord. Jesus brings deliverance. The second stronghold, our corruption, the corruption of our minds, our bodies and our spirits due to sickness and disease, Jesus counters with healing. And the third stronghold, the deep wounds of guilt and shame we inflict upon ourselves or which others make us victim, Jesus brings the word of forgiveness. Idolatry, corruption, guilt and shame. Jesus brings deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. Talk isn't cheap with Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. Because notice, Jesus does what only God can do. You and I can talk and it can mean nothing. Talk can be cheap with us. But like God, like God, who when he speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things are created. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Things change out of the nothingness of idolatry, out of the emptiness of sickness, out of the barrenness of guilt and shame, Jesus creates the possibility and promise of something new. We go through the Gospels and as Jesus moves from place to place, and remember the kingdom of God is activity. It's the activity of God as Jesus moves from place to place. These three strongholds that bind us, idolatry, corruption, guilt and shame, are systematically taken apart until all three of them are decisively broken on the cross and through the resurrection. What is the kingdom of God? It is the message and activity of God now to create in us new life, to give us real freedom, to carry us forward into an everlasting tomorrow. And if that's a mouthful for you, I go back to where I started. The kingdom of God is God meeting us in our present in order to move us into his future for us. This moves us to our second point. We've kind of given some framework to what is the kingdom of God. And the second point is even though we can define what the kingdom of God is, it can remain hard for us to understand. It can remain hard for us to understand, to even see. Why? Because the kingdom of God back then and the kingdom of God still today is different than what we expect. It's different than what we're even looking for. The people of Israel, you'll know this, you know this, had a hard time perceiving the kingdom of God and accepting Jesus because what he described, what he was doing, was not the kingdom they were anticipating. They were looking for a mighty warrior. They were looking for someone to lead them into victory against the forces that occupied their homeland. The righteousness the people were looking for was about conquest, about cleaning house, and taking back what they had lost. Their focus was on the opposition outside, the Roman Empire, and those who opposed their faith and tradition. Now Jesus came, and the kingdom he was establishing was aimed at conquest and cleaning house. It was purposed towards victory and taking back lost territory. But here's the thing. His focus was not on the enemy outside. Jesus' focus was on the war within. The war within. God came down to reign in Jesus Christ once and for all over the real battle. The one Israel fought time and time again and always decisively lost. Not against a foreign power, but against the power of their own sin. But this 
wasn't the kind of rule the people were expecting. This wasn't the kind of rule or reign the people were looking for. And it can be hard for us still today to recognize, let alone embrace the kingdom of God because it is still so different from what we expect. It's still so different from what we are looking for too. It's hard for us to understand the kingdom of God if you really get into it, if you really marinate in this idea of the kingdom of God, this this announcement. It's hard for us to understand the kingdom of God because our default narrative in the West is different. We're used to living in a democracy, right? That's what we're used to. We're used to living in a democracy. And what I mean by that is the way that we understand the world works is, or should work, is I give power through my vote to those whom I choose to lead. We're used to living in a democracy. I give power, you give power, through our vote to those we choose to lead us. But if, you, if you're really paying attention, the kingdom of God presumes not that we're living in a democracy, it presumes we're living in a monarchy. That our power belongs to Our power is given to us by God and he leads us in leading others to him. The kingdom of God can be hard for us to understand because it's different than how we live. We tend to be more of an individualistic society, right? I mean, we're more individualistic. I take care of me first and then I take care of you, of others. I take care of me first and then I take care of others. That's to us what is logical. That's what makes sense. However, Jesus teaches and models that the way, the truth, and the life of the kingdom is first to serve others, and in putting others first, you will be served too. Totally upside down than how we think the ways the the world's supposed to work. It's hard for us to see the kingdom of God because it's not necessarily what we're looking for, right? We practice self-help. We love self-help. Go to the bookstore, man. The self-help section is huge, filled with stuff. Self-help, infomercials, self-help. We're all about self-help. We, the latest self-help thing, it will be at the top bestseller list. Your best life now. Self-help, we're all about self-help. We tell ourselves that God helps those who help themselves. I work on becoming my best self. You work on becoming your best self. And that way we're all good, right? That's how we get world peace. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. That was Michael Jackson. (laughs) Right? We're all about self-help. But God, but Jesus tells us God reigns, God rules. The kingdom of God is here because we can't help ourselves. That's the problem of sin, right? We can't help ourselves from repeatedly forgetting, neglecting, even rebelling against our king. We can't help ourselves from neglecting and biting the very hand that feeds us, the very relationship that gives us life, that offers us everything we need. We can't help ourselves when our attitudes, our choices, and our actions lead us in the wrong direction and we get stuck or lost or worse, wounded. Beloved, living in the kingdom of God is accepting we can't help ourselves. And living in the kingdom of God is rejoicing we don't have to because our king has come for us. And our king comes bringing deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. Deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. Maybe not what we were expecting or looking for, but absolutely, unquestionably what we need. 
You know, you guys gave great answers when I said, how do you summarize everything that Jesus said and taught? Some other things you might have said are the Sermon on the Mount. Someone did say, love thy neighbor. We might have said, do unto others. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Bless those who persecute you. All these things, all those things you said, all these specific instructions and teachings of Jesus only make sense if we understand, if we accept the reality of the kingdom, that the Lord rules and reigns, that Jesus is king. If we don't get, if we don't accept the kingdom of God that Jesus is king, then what we do, and this is what we often do, we take these specific teachings of Jesus and we make them into moralisms. Helpful advice or positive principles, right? Man, Jesus was such a good guy. He gave such great advice. Man, that love thy neighbor thing, that would be a good thing for me to do. You know, to bless those who persecute me, that'd be good for me. But this stuff that Jesus teaches us, shows us, commands us to go and do likewise, these aren't just positive principles or helpful advice. These teachings of Jesus are him declaring this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way life was created to be. In other words, the message of the kingdom reflected through the character of Christ doesn't just do us some good. Shot in the arm. The message of the kingdom through the character of Christ is that what is good, the way, the truth, and the life of God's reign is the only good. Jesus is not one option among many. The kingdom is not one kingdom among many, and maybe this is a good one for you. This is life. This is death. This is a future. This is the end. And this brings us to this understanding that living in the kingdom of God is not about me. Living in the kingdom of God is not about me becoming my best self and you becoming yours apart from each other. And that's often what we do, right? I'll work on me, you work on you, and then we'll come together. No, living in the kingdom of God is about you and me becoming more and more like Jesus. Becoming who we were fearfully and wonderfully made to be in Christ together. Together. This brings us to the final thing. We've, we've kind of defined the kingdom. We've really kind of wrestled with how it can be difficult for us to, to see and accept the kingdom of God because it's so upside down from how we live. But now we have to ask ourselves, given all of this, how do we see the kingdom of God? How do we recognize and participate in the reign and rule of Christ, given what it is, given the things that are in front of us? And here it is. Recognizing and entering the kingdom means seeing it the way Jesus does. Recognizing and entering the reign and rule of God means seeing that reign and rule the way Jesus does. And if you've never done this before, I encourage you not just to take my word for it, but if you read through the Gospels and you not just look at how often Jesus mentions the kingdom of God, but if you were to do a survey of the way, the primary way Jesus describes the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God like? You may be shocked to know the primary way Jesus sees the kingdom more than anything else he likes, likens it to is a party. A party, people, come on! I, I've hung out with some of you. I know when someone says party, you're not like this. Oh, great, a party. I think I'll go. What the heck? The primary way Jesus describes the reign and rule of God, the kingdom of God, is a party. Look, 
He calls it a wedding feast. He calls it a family reunion, a great banquet reception, an epic block party, a celebration that's so deep, so wide and high that even the angels can't help but join in the festivities. The kingdom of God is like a party, Jesus says. Oh, and you go, yeah, but that's a story he tells. Jesus is great at telling stories and nothing tells a story better than making it like a party. You are right, but Jesus doesn't just tell stories saying the kingdom of God is like a party. Lest we miss the point, read carefully, Jesus plays on this theme in actualizing the party. Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine at a friend's wedding and turning what looked like a party foul into a more joyous celebration. The kingdom of God wasn't just something Jesus taught as a party. He lived it out as a party. Every time the Pharisees wanted to talk about rules and regulations, about the caliber of guests seated around the table, or the day of the week in which he was hosting the party, Jesus just kept on celebrating, man. He, already, he just kept turning an already good party into even higher gear. When the disciples were ready to send everyone home due to a lack of food, this has been a great conference, great seminar, good stuff, Jesus, good teaching. It's getting late, though. We don't have food to feed all these people. Jesus brought the party as he multiplied the few provisions that could be gathered into more than enough, enough for everyone to take home leftovers. Jesus didn't just bring the party. You read the Gospels carefully. Jesus was, as we like to say, the life of the party. That's why people were constantly flocking to Jesus. That's why parents always wanted their children to hang out with Jesus. That's why the outcasts, the prostitutes, and the lepers always tried to rub shoulders with Jesus. Jesus was so much the life of the party, he even gate-crashed funerals and cemeteries and turned them into resurrection celebrations. The kingdom of God is a party. Do you see it? I'm, I'm not sure. Do we see the kingdom before, of God before us as it is? Can we see the party? Can we see the celebration that Jesus is inviting us to be a part of? Because here it is, if the, if the Bible's true, if what Jesus says is true, if the kingdom of God is within us, if the spirit of Christ lives within you, are you, are we bringing the party? Are we bringing the good news of the kingdom to others? Are we extending the invitation to deliverance and freedom, to healing and restoration, to forgiveness and joy? If you want to see the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God as a party means realizing we are guests just like everybody else. Seeing the kingdom of God means realizing we are guests just like everybody else. Our relationship with others, those around us, and by the way, when I say our relationship with others and those around us, I don't just mean the people in this room. I mean everybody out there. Our relationship with those around us, if we see the kingdom of God as a party, our relationship with those around us are meant to be not vertical, but horizontal. Out there, we are filled with these perceived ideas of hierarchy, right? We rank and rate ourselves and each other all the time. But understand this, any perceived ideas of hierarchy of any kind, whether we base them on moral, spiritual, social, financial, ethnic, racial, or gender issues are to be left at the door of the kingdom of God. There is no such place for any such ranking or rating, any such ideas in the kingdom of God. Jesus repeatedly says, don't jockey for the best seat. Don't claim the highest place. Don't presume you're the most important person in the room. And beloved, can I suggest if you can't see the kingdom of God as a party, maybe because that's exactly how you see the world. You are worried about your rank and your rating, whether you are 
trying desperately to move up or whether you are concerned about making sure that other people stay down. Our relationships with others are not to be based on rankings and ratings. We are guests like everyone else. Our relationships with others are to be based on the grace of God. Because when you truly see the kingdom of God as a party, when we truly see everyone as guests just like ourselves, then that means we see each other as equals. Equally needy and equally loved by our heavenly Father in Christ. When you step through those doors and you go back into that world and you go back to the rankings and the ratings again, let it enter into your mind. See the party and that person that you think is above you, that person that you think is beneath you, say, no, that is my brother, that is my sister, that is my equal because they are equally needy and equally loved by our heavenly Father in Christ as me. Seeing the kingdom of God as a party means acknowledging Jesus as the host and that means following his example in how we engage others at the door or inside the celebration. That's a great way to think of discipleship. We say we follow Jesus. Seeing the kingdom of God as a party, discipleship means understanding Jesus is the host. And we follow his example on how we engage others at the door or inside the celebration. And this is significant because, again, you and me, when we throw a party, it, me too, when we throw a party, some make it in, but always some people get left out, Right? And sometimes they get left out because there's just not enough room, right? My house is only so big. I've only got so much space. I got to draw the line somewhere. I can't invite everybody, right? But sometimes some people are in and some people are out because we don't invite the people we don't like, right? We invite the people we want to hang out with. But the announcement, the invitation, the promise of the kingdom of God is no one has to be an outsider again. No one has to be an outsider again. There's more than enough room. It's never filled to capacity. We can always take one more. In fact, we go searching for the one out of 99 that still isn't here. There's always room in the party that is the kingdom of God. And when God throws a party, everyone gets invited. In the kingdom of God, we don't control the guest list or the seating chart. And man, isn't that what we're all about? You know, when we throw parties, we make our parties political. We make our parties denominational. We even make our parties nationalistic. But the party that is the kingdom of God doesn't segregate, it integrates. Hear this, church. Hear this world. We're all about ratings and rankings, and we're all about segregation. You're over here, and we're over here, and we just kind of stay like... The kingdom of God is not about segregation. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of integration. It's a party where everyone's invited. The platform of the kingdom of God... The party that is the kingdom of God, the platform is deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. The platform of Jesus' party is mercy, love, and freedom extended towards all, not just our friends and family, not just the people we like, not just the people we want to hang out with, but our neighbors, strangers, even our enemies, because these are people who need Jesus just as much as we do. They need a party just like we do. Jesus progressively, I mean, you can't miss this, as he not only talks about, but lives out the kingdom of God as a party. Jesus progressively and totally demolishes the boundaries of those we consider acceptable or welcome in the kingdom. Because there are no classes of people in the kingdom of God. And again, this is so upside down because we're all about class. We're all about where people fit. In the kingdom of God, there's just children of the king. There are no classes, there's just children of the king. 
mean, if you're not getting into the party yet, I mean, think about a king. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is what's so non sequitur for me. When I think about a king, kings that I know, kings that I've learned about, typically when we think of a king, a king is about what? Amassing power and lording it over the people, right? Our God is the king of kings who shares his power with us, shares his power with us, who entrusts us to represent him. Even more than this, our God comes down to us in Jesus Christ to remind us not to call him our king. Yes, he is our king, but Jesus comes down and reminds us to call him our father. Jesus comes down to remind us not to be afraid, but to remember we are not just his subjects. We are his beloved children. Our God, our king, lords over us with love. With love. You and me, we know those we, we love those we know, right? That's how it works. We love those we know. I love you if I know you, and as I get to know you, I love you more, right? <laughs> but the good news of the kingdom of God is God loves us even when we don't know him. Even when we don't want to know him, God knows us and loves us anyway. We love those we trust, right? If I can trust you, then I love you. I'll take the risk of loving you if I can trust you, right? But the good news of the kingdom of God is even though we have proven ourselves untrustworthy, even though we are fickle and even rebellious towards him, God trusts us and loves us anyway. We love those who love us back, right? I'll love you if you love me back. You love me, I'll love you, right? But the good news of the kingdom of God is God loves us even though we refuse to love him back. Even though we spurn, even though we ignore, even though we cheapen his affection towards us, taking it for granted, God remains devoted to us and loves us anyway. This is the good news of the kingdom that makes the kingdom of God a party. We are sons and daughters of the king, of our heavenly father, despite ourselves. Despite our lack of vision. And this kingdom come through Jesus Christ. Jesus seeks to deliver not only in us, but through us. Don't miss this church. Like the messenger Isaiah told about and the messenger Christ himself was, we too are now charged with going out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. I see a couple of nodding heads, but let me ask you, when's the last time you told someone about Jesus, let alone mention the kingdom? The kingdom of God is a party. I know many of you very, very well, and I know you love to party. And I know when you go to a party and you're having an amazing time, man, this is awesome. You are like, can I invite this person? Can I have this person drop by? This is amazing, right? I know when you go to some place, a restaurant or some kind of establishment that's festive, that's just, man, it, it blows your mind. Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. You can't stop talking about it. I can't make you not talk about it. You'll talk about it to people in the grocery store. Have you been to, you gotta go. Oh my gosh. Have you experienced, you gotta taste this. This is amazing. We know how to party, and when we party, we know how to invite others, and we know how to talk it up and tell people they gotta go. And what's the deal with Jesus in the kingdom? Because most of us are like, well, you know, I don't really talk about Jesus, because, you know, I don't really know what I'd say, and, you know, I don't, I don't really talk about the whole kingdom or church, because, you know, people don't like that, and, you know, they have certain things they think it's about. Share the party, man. Invite the party. Live the party, people. Live the party. 
And again, based on your reaction before that I had to woohoo, get you to go there, you got some living to do here. Live the party. What if? What if? What if we as the church stopped shouting about what we are against and started showing people? Stop shouting about what we are against and start showing people we, like Jesus, are the friends of sinners instead of their enemies. That we are for them rather than sitting in judgment on them. What if? What if we as followers of Jesus started throwing more parties instead of holding more protests? What if we started throwing more parties instead of holding more protests, celebrating God, celebrating life, celebrating people, rather than demanding our rights, complaining about how unfairly we're being treated and expressing our disapproval? What if? What if before our prodigal brothers and sisters around us, what if we as the body of Christ adopted the posture and character of our welcoming father rather than holding on to the stubborn, defiant disposition of the elder brother? What if instead of worrying about and trying to bounce people at the door, making them feel like they have to earn the right to get through, to prove themselves to be worthy of a seat at the table. What if instead of being the bouncers at the door, we were the promoters of the party? Getting the word out about Jesus, how Jesus already paid their way to be here, how everyone is welcomed as a guest of the king, and what if we actually made them feel welcome, made them feel like they belong? What if? Would these pews be filled? Would the world's view of the church change? Would people see Jesus for who he truly is and not for the false representations we also often make of him? Would our world be turned upside down? Would we actually see the deliverance, the healing, and the forgiveness that we pray for, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of our families, our neighborhoods, our communities? Would we see the cynicism and the hate and the anger and the, the apathy dissolve as people are dancing and singing and rejoicing and proclaiming this is crazy, this is amazing, this is impossible, but it's actually happening. We're being delivered. We're free. We're being healed. We're being transformed and changed. We are no longer weighed down by guilt and shame. We are no longer afraid of each other. We can embrace each other. We can share life together. We can build the kingdom together. What if? Beloved, there's a party going on right here. I'm so close to it. It's a celebration. <laughs> there's a party going on right here. Some good times and some laughter too. We're going to celebrate the kingdom with you. Come on now. There's a party going on right here called the kingdom of God. No matter what our station in life, whether we fancy ourselves on the A list, the B list, the hit list, or some other list, we have been invited not just to believe, but more importantly, to belong we are not invited because we've earned it. We're not invited because we deserved it. We're not invited because we scored a ticket or just happened to know somebody. We've been invited because Jesus knows us, because Christ is unconditionally with us, because Jesus Christ has prepared a place for us, a table for all of us, where love is served in portions that continue to overflow and where grace is as tangible as the bread we will soon hold in our hands. 
God's reign, God's rule in our lives in this world means evil, injustice, and human failure, our failure, are not the way the story ends. Where once, can do you remember it? Maybe you're still living there. Where once, because of our sin, we anticipated a full stop, fade to black. The coming of Christ and the realization of the kingdom means a better, beautiful, everlasting chapter is being written even now. In Jesus Christ, our King has come to meet us in our present, to move us into his future for us. And as the final book of the Bible, Revelation assures us, the party's just getting started. The best is yet to come. Amen.